Hi, Jeff here from the University of Kentucky. Ciao, I'm Kristen from the University of Minnesota. Salut, this is Tina from the University of Colorado. And alam, greetings. This is Stuart from the University of Mississippi. Welcome to Pharmacy Fika. A podcast for pharmacy educators by pharmacy educators. Where we discuss teaching and learning, scholarship, and academic life. In Sweden, uh, a fika is a coffee break, but it's much more than that. It's a state of mind and attitude. It's all about slowing down. And finding time for friends and colleagues. While you sip a beverage and enjoy a little something nice to eat. So join us. Welcome, everybody, to the Pharmacy Fika. It's Epidose number 16. It's terrific to have you all back, and we're still going at it, so that's great. We're getting lots of great feedback from our audience, too. Today's episode, we have a special guest from Down Under, and we'll explain a bit more about that. So we're actually recording this in the afternoon in the United States because it's morning tomorrow in Australia. And so our snack choices might be a little bit different, but as always, we start Fika with some sharing about things we're eating and enjoying today. So I will start because I got the Celsius, I got inspired by Daniel Malcolm's energy drinks that he talked about focus, which I don't have in my area. So I got some of these Celsius beverages and yeah, they've they've been nice pick me up in the afternoon and I'm able to concentrate on things. So that's what I have. I do not have a a snack today. So because this is five o'clock my time, I'm going straight to dinner after this. So no snack for me, just water. Well, today I have a, a peanut butter spoon that's not peanut butter. So I made my own pistachio butter, roasted pistachios, and then mixed them up and ground them. And here I go, butter. She's getting jiggy with it. <laughs> I love it. Well, I have my usual ginger tea because you can drink that any time of day, but I did have an Australian sweet just beforehand. It's called a minty, and we used to have them in our education room at Monash, but the problem is they're very chewy and they'll stick your, yeah. your jaw together, so I said, I better eat it before we talk versus during while we talk. And do you want to introduce Michelle? Of course. I'd love to introduce my Friend and colleague, Michelle Lazarus, Dr. Michelle Lazarus is an associate professor at Monash University, and she's the director of the Monash Center for Human Anatomy Education. I first met her as part of the Monash Center for Scholarship in Health Education, and she was really one of the first people from the main campus outside of pharmacy that I met. She was even then doing work. And I think we were calling it tolerance of ambiguity at that time. We were, we were. (laughs) And I thought, this is such an interesting concept, especially as I was coming into a new culture and figuring out how pharmacy might be the same and different, how academia might be the same and different. She's written some fantastic papers that we'll link in the show notes. But as we have talked and different things have emerged, I think I've always found this underlying layer of uncertainty tolerance, whether that's from the learner perspective or the teacher perspective. And I wanted Michelle to be able to join us today. Michelle, did I warn you? Did you need a little snack? Uh, No, it's brekkie time here. And I had eggs and bacon and I'm drinking sparkle water, (laughs) bubble water. So that's my snack. And I want to say thank you so much for inviting me on. 
And thank you for the introduction. Again, when I first met Michelle, we were sort of talking about ambiguity, Mm. not uncertainty. But I thought, Michelle, you could tell us a little bit about how you even got interested in this topic. With your introduction, you talked about me being an anatomist and I had somebody come up to me. So I just finished a book who said, it's very interesting that you as an anatomist wrote a book on uncertainty. Because I think the perception of anatomy is it's very known, it's complete, what the heck could be uncertain about anatomy. And it turned out, like many of us who do education research, you have to face the data that comes back at you, whether it's positive or negative. And what we realized when we were doing a larger study on how was anatomy education influencing or impacting professional identity of future medics we realized we were epically failing at teaching uncertainty tolerance. So we would walk into the classroom and say things like, oh, you need to know this structure. And then the next part of that sentence would be, because if you don't, the patient's going to die, be maimed, something horrible was going to happen. When in reality, most healthcare professionals need to leave room for uncertainty. And if you don't, that's when lethality comes. So I think facing that data in that space, this bias in anatomy that it's all known and knowable was how I got into the topic. And as your understanding of this has continued to emerge, are you guys seeing differences across the health professions within various different pharmacy, medicine, nursing, dentistry, physical therapy, et cetera? So interestingly, we did this study of all different types of professions from business and economics through to healthcare. And what we found is that every person we interviewed, whether they're a teacher of this, a student of this, or a practitioner of the field we were interviewing, everybody thinks they have a monopoly on uncertainty in their field. And it turns out uncertainty is everywhere. So if you name a field in a sector, it is present. I think what we found was that the biggest stimulus of uncertainty are humans. Our thoughts, our feelings and behaviors, mm-hmm. our complexity generates uncertainty. So if you have a field without humans, then you may have a field without uncertainty. So when we look at health professions, there's been a lot of studies. Uh, does a surgeon, does a psychologist, does a physiotherapist? It turns out it's pretty ubiquitous. It's pretty universal. And then also, I'm keen to next question a little bit about our preparation as teachers of uncertainty. Mm. You know, yeah, how do te- we, how are we prepared? We, we, we might get training in our technical area. Yeah. Increasingly, we're getting a little training in teaching that technical area. Yep. But how are we prepared for teaching to- uncertainty tolerance? So we did a huge portion of us uh, being at a university, we explored this research in educators. And it turns out one of the biggest findings, which is represented from primary to secondary through to university, is that teaching is filled with uncertainty. And if your tolerance of uncertainty is low, you will create an environment where your students also don't tolerate uncertainty well. So there's almost like this progression or support that needs to happen for educators to become comfortable with uncertainty. I think there's some debate recently, there was another podcast that sort of suggested that you just gain uncertainty tolerance through experience. It turns out that's epically not true. At least that's the data that we've seen. 
And the example I use is you have a patient that comes into your clinic, for instance, and you misdiagnosed a headache in the past as being just a headache, and it turned out it was brain cancer. You could be the most experienced clinician in the world. You're now less tolerant of uncertainty. And they saw that also in business and economics, where no matter how experienced a auditor was, that was irrelevant to their level of uncertainty tolerance. So we actually almost need a support system or a program to help educators learn to manage uncertainty. And the burnout we see in teachers is likely because we're not preparing them for that. And they walk into the classroom thinking if you just fill out the right lesson plan and you just do the right thing in that classroom, that everything works. But we don't know what our students know before they come into class, what they ate, who they argued with. There's all of these sources of uncertainty. So I think it's a big topic that isn't really taught. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of truth in a, in a sense. So mm. is the truth knowable? And I think a lot of people have mm. angst about that, particularly, and I'm sure it's true for many disciplines, but when I think of pharmacists, uh, there's a need to know something and to know that it is absolutely correct. When we know, just just in my lifetime, most things that I've known in my lifetime prove to be not quite right or epically wrong. (laughs) And so even though our experience tells us that most of what we think we know is to be the truth is not quite correct, we still seem to gravitate to wanting to know the truth, to have it be the truth, and also to teach our students that it is the truth, that we frame, for example, assessments in a way that point to a truth even though that is not really the way the world works and the way we as human beings, we don't know most things yet. We know a lot more than we did perhaps 100 years ago. It's fascinating, especially in this post-truth world, uh, what does it mean to define truth? And in the chapter on science research, I get into this almost pseudo-paradox about what is truth, what can we know to be true? And Those of us who do research who are in science, we know that there's degrees of certainty and degrees of uncertainty, but conveying that is really challenging. So the example I use in the book is about antibiotics or penicillin. So penicillin, it's a very effective antibiotic. Now we have penicillin-resistant bacteria. It doesn't mean that penicillin, factually, that we can't know it didn't work. It worked. But the challenge that we have in truth is that what we hold to be true in a moment in a context doesn't necessarily hold true in a different moment, different context. And that's where we get in the degrees of uncertainty. And I think conveying that and helping our community better understand that can be incredibly valuable in managing uncertainty and identifying truth. We can have truths, but those truths are time-bound and context-bound. Uncertainty tolerance, especially in a discipline is relative to the discipline knowledge. There is also a misconception that uncertainty tolerance is just saying, I don't know, and you get to sit there in that lack of knowledge, and that's okay. That's actually intolerant of uncertainty. (laughs) Uncertainty tolerance is knowing what you can know in that context and knowing what you can't know and still making a decision. And so that still making a decision, the technical expertise, I would say, is, is impacting on uncertainty tolerance, but separate from it. What becomes uncertain actually decreases with expertise. I wanted to link something. I mean, 
something that Kristen has reminded us of, our identity as teachers. Mm. And, and there's a lot of fear, yeah. right? There's a lot of fear of yep. loss of identity. My identity is as the expert. Yep. And, and so if I show even a tolerance of uncertainty mm. in a way that's changing what my identity is, and even that word tolerant, being yeah. able to to push through the discomfort, basically. <laughs> KJ, you always say it much better than I do, but when you talk about fear, it, it really resonates with me. I think what I'm hearing is so critical. My pet peeve is all those like posters that say, just face the uncertainty. And like that, like it's BS for lack of a better term. <laughs> There's something critical underlying all of this. So when we're talking about uncertainty tolerance and we're talking about educators having that, it's against a backdrop of psychological safety. So if you are in an environment where it is absolutely cutthroat and you will be annihilated for showing vulnerability, it is not safe to embrace uncertainty. And so this is where I, I think, and I really wanted this to come across in the book, Individuals can only do so much if they're in a system set up to be intolerant of uncertainty. And I think what you're talking about, Tina, is, is our colleagues discovered or uncovered a theme called intellectual candor. And it's this balance between credibility and vulnerability and almost taking on a coach-like approach in that room as teachers. So in, we can ask the right questions and show the right vulnerability because of our expertise. We know how to help guide them. And so for us, that looks like a student struggling with a uncertain problem and say, you know what? I totally agree. I have the same challenge. And then you give them steps to which you address that uncertainty, how you managed, how you adaptively responded. And that's where you become an expert. So our expertise is beyond just our discipline expertise, but within how to manage uncertainty as well. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. Is There are many contexts where it's not, you don't want to tell a patient coming back after a cancer diagnosis, oh, just tolerate uncertainty, just adapt it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> or somebody who's marginalized by society saying, oh, you've just got to be more curious. No. And again, if you're in a system that's set up for intolerance, you're going to be a fish at like trying to swim against the stream. So yeah. One of the articles that you had shared with us, mm-hmm. and there were several that she did, by the way, and that I found fascinating was this idea that our feelings of uncertainty heightens our feelings. And so a feeling of uncertainty associated with something positive heightens the positivity of that experience. So my, my feelings of positivity actually gets heightened and savored, whereas my feelings, if I have feelings of uncertainty of something like fear or or embarrassment, it would heighten those feelings because of the uncertainty. So it's it's like the fear of a diagnosis that I'm uncertain about. The fear gets amplified. Mm -hmm. We all know that, right? Once you know you have cancer, your fear is diminished. And so I'm wondering how that plays out and how, well, one, we teach students about this concept? And and B, what are the strategies to help students be more comfortable with uncertainty? Because life is full of uncertainty and certainly clinical practices. Really, all these questions are standing. I'm just taking a lot of notes. I think there's a couple points I want to hit upon with that. 
it's interesting in all the literature, there's a recent meta-analysis that looked at fMRI studies about uncertainty, which part of your brains light up. And this emotional response, what's interesting is I don't know how useful it is in determining whether somebody is tolerant or intolerant. Because if we have these strong emotions, even if they're negative, and we can behaviorally respond appropriately, is that really being tolerant of uncertainty? And I think I'm leaning more towards that with the more evidence coming in. And interestingly, these fMRI studies reveal that we need those emotions to learn the material. So if you're just bored, think about it. I've definitely zoned out of a TV show that I, I could have learned something, a documentary, but if they get me emotionally, I'm, I take it home. It's permanent. We've all heard that telling stories improves it. I think the other thing I learned from those studies that I sent, we're terrible at predicting outcomes of uncertainty. So basically, my motto now is don't try to predict the outcome of, the, of whatever it is that I don't know about. I'm just going to maintain curiosity. I'm going to walk in and go, I wonder what's going to happen. So by not including that prediction, we can remove some of those emotions. And then you asked a third question, how do we help our students? That's such a critical question. The biggest, best advice I can say is that don't do a one-off activity because you're going to be probably the person they hate. Mm -hmm. uh, in a learning environment, their grades are high risk. Their performance is their currency. When you have a high-risk situation, naturally systems and individuals tend to want to push that uncertainty down because the most people equate uncertainty with risk. So you're putting them in a high-risk situation as a one-off without any support, basically. So we talked about intellectual candor is a great way to support them. I now introduce uncertainty and why it's relevant to their future career. And I do this through a story. I talk about the U.S. flu, you could use COVID now, and how important learning to manage uncertainty was at the beginning of the pandemic so that you could actually help patients the best. All of these unique things that we learned because we stayed curious in the face of a massive, high-risk, extraordinary set of uncertain circumstances. And then across every single study we did, the biggest take-home is reflective process. So that emotional response that you described, that huge emotional response, it turns out we're, we may be pre-programmed to feel negatively when it's high risk, like trying to say, oh, just picture the positives is, is just, it's not going to work. It's not going to land well. But if you go through the uncertain experience and you do a reflection and go, well, how did I feel? What actually happened? Those kinds of things. You end up with what our studies have shown is you end up with better adaptive skills in the face of the next uncertainty. We would suggest that that critical reflection where you think about how did I feel? What did I think? What did I do? What will I do next time? Needs to be formative. Mm -hmm. If you put a grade on it, you then add in the risk. And I think the other thing that I took home from the writing of the book is we need to, at some level, also remember that uncertainty is, is the seed of hope. It's the seed of opportunity. So where possible inculcating that. But I think the biggest thing is critical reflection and don't do it on its own. <laughs> Michelle, you mentioned, or you said the term intellectual candor before. Mm -hmm. So our pharmacy residents, like at mo and most schools, do a little teaching in our program. They get sort of their first experience. And when most of them come into the classroom that first time, they are, I think they are trying to balance that 
credibility, right? Because they're one year removed from being a student and now they're Mm -hmm. trying to say, yes, I know what I'm talking about, but they're also very, they feel very vulnerable up there. And if left to their own device, they tend to like try to shrink the box of what they're going to cover and like not open up anything that can come from students that might throw them off that would get them outside of like what they they've not prepared for. Yep. So what can we do either pre or post teaching experience to help them with that? Do you have mm. any advice on that? That's such a good question. And I would say my advice is probably going to emulate the first day of class for a student as well. So I have softened my view of how deep we should throw them in the water of uncertainty, <laughs> in the pool of uncertainty. So on the first day of anything, think about, like, I think about my move over here and the first day I was freaking out. I had no idea. People were using words I didn't understand. You think, everybody told me when I moved here, oh, it'll be easy. They speak English. They do not. I mean, we do not. <laughs> There's some version of it. It's beautiful and I love it now, but I had no idea what people were saying. I literally needed an interpreter, my colleague. There's so much uncertainty for anybody starting their first day of any situation. And then you put in there, in those situations as teachers, we now have added uncertainty. I said the biggest source of uncertainty is humans. You have hundreds of humans now in there, which is generating even larger sources of uncertainty. So I would suggest that that first day not be filled with uncertainty. Support them to to have bounds on that uncertainty. And then as the week progresses, so if you can give them an orientation on that first day, and this goes for students as well, have a team teacher to, to refer to with them on those first days. Any additional supports you can place around them is really critical. I liken this to pushing a kid into a pool. Like you wouldn't do that without some previews, without some floaties, without a teacher there guiding them. I think what I have come to realize is that anytime it's the first of anything, the sources of uncertainty are so extraordinary. We can't expect them to embrace it the way an expert was where we've narrowed in on that uncertainty. Does that answer? Yeah. Yeah. So that actually comforts me to think that, okay, that's probably the best thing for them. It's not exactly. the worst thing. Okay. Yep. Because they still need to practice it. So it's not bad to also practice it. But I think building in those additional sports, having them run through the class experience, having another teacher there on their first day to ask questions to and to refer back to. And then I would add in that critical reflection at the end, have them write up about the experience before they move on. So that would be my off-the-cuff recommendation. Tina, sorry. I was just thinking about, imagine me standing up here naked with my vulnerability, but trying to show my credibility. Um, And and I think, you know, normalizing that discussion with them and they may only be able to really get a little bit of what you're saying. But I think each subsequent dip in the pool, they get stronger and stronger and they can take those floaties off and they can make it one time across. They can make it back and forth. Now they can teach others. Right. So, um, I. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you bring up something really important, Tina. It's a it's a developmental process. That's what I think the biggest thing for me I've taken away is that the conceptualization of uncertainty tolerance used to be you're born with it, it's Maybelline, you know, good luck to you. But more and more evidence is coming back that this is a developmental process. This is something that we can impact and change and grow. And so if we think about it that way, 
and the way we teach is the way we would teach others, even educators, to manage it. So, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about is do our do our assessment processes that we typically mm. use really reinforce the idea that the world is certain? And yes. that actually is is proving to be a disservice to our students, to our learners. And that the idea of remaining curious to remaining okay with things not turning out the way you would hope, that not every decision is, well, no decision will lead to a certain outcome. No decision will lead to a certain outcome. Exactly. And yet, we teach in a way as though it would. And, and I'm all wondering, how do we change our assessment processes so that there's more room for the uncertain outcome? It's a fantastic question. And it was interesting. One of our <laughs> research questions kept asking, well, how do you test for this? How do you evaluate for this? And that I, we just got a lot of silence. <laughs> um, but with that said, I do think there are strategies that have been used and do a very good proxy of helping students learn to manage uncertainty. And I totally agree. And we before the podcast recording started, we were talking a little bit about artificial intelligence. And the reality is we're seeing the data now. If your tests are evaluating concrete known knowledge, that's probably going to be taken over by artificial intelligence in the future. It's really good at that. What we have an advantage of is being able to add in context, create things that aren't yet there, uh, future plan. So I think the assessments need to have that in mind. We have the simple way, pass, fail, we can ask more gray, ambiguous questions that way. One thing I uh, heard about that they used to do what they called gray, gray cases. So they would have a STEM that was a clinical case and every answer was possible. And it was just which one was more likely you got the most points, least likely, less likely. So they were all okay. So it's an easy high throughput way because as Tina knows, we teach like 600 to 800 students a year. The other idea which I think could work is really rewarding and evaluating the process as opposed to the endpoint. So you set questions that you know will produce different answers, but all of them equally reasonable. And when we think about our futures in relationship with artificial intelligence, that may be a really outstanding way to work alongside is developing the skill set to accept that actually multiple answers are probably correct. And if I work together with other people with a different point of view, we can actually come up with an even better answer. So I think that would be my approach is to stop rewarding the endpoint, start rewarding the process and asking questions that are either future focused, future pandemics. And also you can set multiple choice questions that I think allow for gray answers as well. But I do 100% agree that our current assessment strategy most of us are reinforcing certainty over managing and adaptively responding to uncertainty. Yeah. It's a really important point. I know Kristen was, was about to say something, and she always says something profound. Stop it. <laughs> no, the pressure's on. No, I've, I've been sitting here thinking about, do we have a special tension here? I'm thinking back to what Stuart said about pharmacy and... We are a profession that has strong roots in safety, right? And, and that means prediction. That means control. You know, we, we take that on as a responsibility. But then on 
kind of the other end of the continuum, we're asking people to have this uncertainty tolerance in a system that seems to demand something very different. And, and so I know you said, Michelle, that all the other professions and disciplines feel this way too, but I wonder if we do have something special here in pharmacy because of who we are and the responsibility that we take on, a special challenge in getting people to embrace uncertainty. I'm curious what my colleagues think. When I trained in pharmacy, there was a right answer and you would get counted off if you did not have that exact answer. I think, as you say, safety is our middle name. And so are we looking at teaching things that say, this might be a better way, but this probably won't lead to harms? Yeah, it may be a special problem for us, both as a discipline and and the way we conceptualize our roles, but also the personality of people who come to pharmacy school who often crave certainty. They like facts, the knowns. And at least that's my observation is they really get anxious. I think all human beings do, but I think there's a a greater degree of anxiety around not knowing what something is. Tell me what the answer is, is a constant demand. And and partly it's, I think, comes from our assessment strategy, but I do think it's part of personality. And I see Jeff shaking his head and him not being a pharmacist by training may see this in our students more than others. I'm shaking my head because that's what I see all the time. I've dealt less with students from other disciplines, but it does seem to me like pharmacy students want like just what is the right answer? And it could be, you know, a selection bias of students that kind of, you know, self-select into pharmacy because they see that as a field of there are right things to know and do and it's less ambiguous. And then they get into pharmacy and they find out like, oh, it's not. Or it could be partially the way that things are taught. I mean, we always hear, if you do this, well, you just killed a patient. And it raises that like, oh, I can't be wrong on anything. So we've got to get to the right answer. But I do agree with you. There's probably some personality aspect to it. Do not want to make the belief that pharmacy isn't special because you absolutely are. (laughs) Um, And every academic we interviewed uh, and every single sector said this about their students. This view of risk equaling uncertainty is what drives that. I have so much empathy for these students. This is really high risk and we're asking them to tread into waters they're not prepared for. When you were talking, Kristen, um, I... The story comes to mind that I heard in a leadership training, and I feel like it illustrates what you're talking about, if I'm understanding it correctly. And it's the 9-11 scenario. The air traffic controllers have a huge amount of risk and responsibility. They, they, they literally can kill people as well. They're, it's a huge job. Nobody, there was no rule book. There was no explanation of what to do when 9-11, how, nobody said, oh, what if a plane becomes a bomb? But because they were sure of their roles in managing planes, they coordinated across the country to down planes in minutes. So I would argue and identifying, laying out clear roles of a person's identity and profession 
actually can help them manage uncertainty because you can say, my purpose in this uncertainty, no matter what's happening around me, is this. The other thing that comes to my mind is the difference between culture of fear and culture of safety. No matter how many rubrics and checklists we have, it is not going to remove the uncertainty. I, 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 I hate to say this, especially in pharmacy, where you really do have so many cross-checks. But sometimes those cross-checks are still done by humans, interpreted by humans, and understood by humans. So if you don't build into this basically systemic culture of safety, when the uncertainty does arise, nobody speaks up and we actually create a patient issue. We don't fix it. So we introduce safety challenges by not being open and curious and psychologically safe space to speak up about uncertainty. I wanted to end with a, a poem that my wife read. My, my wife is a yoga instructor, and she's full-time educator here at the School of Pharmacy, but part-time <laughs> yoga instructor, and she always has a message. And this is a particular poem that struck me this past week when I was attending her yoga class and how I think it fits with this whole concept. So I'm going to read it to you and see what you all think. It's called The Practice of Wonder. And it's by Danielle Doby, and the book is called I Am Her Tribe. But the poem is, I am still learning when I'm able to move to a space of inquiry with the world around me. Instead of a place of all-knowing, I open up the possibility to invite growth in. I do not allow my anxiety to consume me for not having all of the answers. I know that fear craves certainty and safety and something concrete. I trust the freedom living in the unknown. It's there in this wide open space. I hold the power to create something that has not yet to exist. Beautiful. Beautiful. And, and Stuart, the first line of that poem, I'm still learning is actually the motto of Monash University where <laughs> Michelle works. I've started using the discomfort that's described in that poem as a signal to me, oh, it's time to be curious as opposed to it's time to run and suppress it. So I think it's a really powerful poem. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for being on our show today. We really, thank really, you. really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me. The questions were great. The dialogue was fantastic. And I just really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for joining us, guys. See you next time. And Cora Imparo. Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Fika, a podcast where we enjoy coffee and conversations. If you liked this episode, please pass it along to a colleague and be sure to rate us. You can share your reactions on Twitter at Pharmacy Fika, but please be kind. This is a safe space. Got a question or want to suggest a topic for a future episode? Leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash pharmacyfica. Bye for now. Namaste. Das Vidanya. Au revoir.